You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. John 15, verses 18 through 16, verse 4, okay? So you can open your Bibles and read along, and we'll just read the text as it sits, as it's written, and then Justin will come and lead us through it. So, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Justin, please come. Some weeks you feel more ready to preach than others. Uh, And uh, as a mentor of mine once said, let us pray because we need it. Let us pray before we go to God's word. Heavenly Father, you know our needs, you know our weaknesses. Uh, Heavenly Father, I confess before you my uh, weakness and need for uh, strength and help to deliver uh, your word here uh, to your people. And I pray uh, that you would give us all receptive hearts, humble hearts before you, that you might use your word to change us, that we might look more like Jesus. Uh, and follow him uh, with courage, we pray in his name. Amen. Just by way of reminder, we're in, essentially, the Gospel of John is broken into really two chunks. You've got John 1 through 12, and then John 13 through 21. John 1 through 12 is all about Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, particularly some major signs that he did and key teachings. And then John 13... Uh, through 18 is Jesus giving sort of his last testament to his disciples, his last instructions. These are the last words that he wants them to have before he goes and is crucified. Um, and he's shared things, you know, he's done some remarkable things so far in, in this um, few chapters. He's washed the disciples' feet with incredible humility. Uh, he explains that he's going to go and prepare a place for them. He tells them that he is the vine and they are the branches, a real wonderful image of our connectedness to Jesus. And he talks about the need for them to love one another. And he's preparing them now to go on the mission that he's sending them for. He has a plan for his disciples. And if it seemed thus far a little too kumbaya, you know, with this final parting words of Jesus, now things are going to get a little intense because Jesus is now going to turn from talking about love and being the vine and serving them. He's going to talk about hate and the hate of the world in particular. And this morning, what I'd like to do is answer three questions and then share a story with you. So I want to address here the three questions. Why does the world hate Jesus? 
Question number two, why does the world hate the disciples and us? And then question number three will be, how bad will it get? What do we really mean? What, what does hate mean? Uh, and then we'll conclude with the story. So, question number one, why does the world hate Jesus? Because if we answer this question, it'll help us answer question number two. It's implied, obviously, from the passage that it's because of their hate for Jesus that they hate the disciples. So reason number one in verse 22, the world is going to hate Jesus because of what he says. Jesus' words point out their sins. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And this is something that we've seen as we've read throughout John's gospel. Jesus is not someone who beats around the bush. Jesus regularly shoots straight with everyone he talks with. Uh, and inevitably, almost everyone Jesus talks with, he ends up saying something like, you're guilty or you're a sinner. And he gets a variety of responses. Some people are actually repentant and they want to change. You think of the, the low-down a uh, despised Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. She, in fact, is like, this is what I've been looking for all my life. Because Jesus is able not only to tell her she's a sinner, but he gives her promises and hope. But then some people don't really respond so kindly uh, or thankfully to Jesus, and they, in fact, get into fight mode. And they resist Jesus. For example, in John chapter 7, uh, Jesus' brothers want to go up to one of the festivals, and they're like, Jesus, you've been playing it too low-key. You should go up to this festival. And Jesus says, you guys don't get what's going on. He says in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Not to put it too bluntly. The world's works are evil. And Jesus' words, and not just his words, but his perfect actions expose their guilt, their sin, their wrong, their evil hearts. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being with somebody who you felt was maybe morally, ethically, just better than you, more upstanding, had a they just always seem to respond perfectly in situations where you would lose your cool or where you really wanted to just punch someone in the face. Or maybe like, let's tone it down and not talk about like ethics and uh, those sorts of things. How about just like in some activity that you like, you know, sports or in your job and there's someone who just always seems to outperform you or they just, in those meetings, they always know what to say or they have that better insight than you and you just feel like, oh, I just wish that person would go away because I was better until they showed up. And that is how the world feels about Jesus. He exposes their sin and their guilt and shows them that they're not as self-righteous as they think they are. In John chapter three, we hear Jesus explain this, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. As humans, we don't like to have our faults, our foibles, and our wickedness pointed out to us. And if you've been in any sort of argument with anybody where you're in the wrong and you're trying to defend yourself, you know how aggravating it can be. And we prefer the praise of men rather than the praise of God. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, Jesus says the reason they hate him is because they don't know God as father. They're alienated from God as father. Look at verse 21. They have not known the one who sent me. And verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. Or jump to chapter 16, verse 3. They will do these things 
these hateful things because they have not known the Father nor me. This alienation from God proved, is proved in their hatred for Jesus. And it's quite remarkable that to have Christ is to have God as your Father. But to reject Christ is to lose all connection with God entirely. Whatever connection you may have thought you had, when you encounter Jesus and reject him, you lose God. And many, 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 many people would like to say that they embrace God. They, they believe in God. They fear God. And yet reject Christ. And Christ here says that that is not an equation that works. You cannot have God and not have Jesus. And you're like, well, how's that? Well, there's a number of things to answer that. But for, for very simply, Christ's words and Christ's deeds... He gets from the Father. So if you don't like what Jesus has to say or you don't like what Jesus does, you don't like the things that the Father wants to see done. If you read John chapter 5, verses 19 and 30, for example, Jesus says very explicitly that I tell you what I hear from the Father and I do what the Father shows me. Or even one of his own disciples, who's still kind of a little bit unclear as to who Jesus is, Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, we just want one thing from you. Just one, please. One wish. Show us the Father. And Jesus is a little bit like, oh, Philip. Philip, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Don't you get it, Philip? But Jesus says that they have now seen him and they've hated him and they've hated the Father. Whatever religious delusions they were under that they loved God, when Jesus shows up, he exposes the delusion and proves to them, actually, you were further from God than you thought. You're not really someone who loves God. And then finally, reason number three in verse 25, Jesus says that this is to fulfill scripture. He quotes Psalm 69, they hated me without cause. And throughout scripture, I don't think that here Jesus is saying he's fulfilling Psalm 69 in some sense that it points directly to Jesus, but rather that there is this pattern throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, that there is this hostility that exists between God and the world. And that in Jesus himself, that struggle has come to its, its climax, the pinnacle. The hostility between the world and God, the problem is, is that up until Jesus, the world couldn't get their hands on God to strangle them. But since Genesis chapter 3, when humanity rebelled against God, the hostility has only increased and so Jesus, quoting Psalm 69, listen to Psalm 69, which captures this. In verse 4, more in number, this is Psalm 69, verse 4, sorry. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Notice there's a ton of people that are hating him and there's false accusation and they want him to restore something that he hasn't done, to make right what he hasn't done, a false accusation. But here's the reason, just a few verses later, for it is for your sake and your is God. It is for your sake, God, that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. In Psalm 69, this person is facing what Jesus is facing. David faces opposition from the world because he loves God and wants to do what God wants. And David is foreshadowing the experience of Jesus, only it will be worse for Jesus. So the world hates Jesus because he exposes their sin and guilt. They're alienated from the Father. And it's the climax of the great battle that Scripture has been explaining all this time. So now... Question number two, 
Why does the world hate the disciples? Almost most of the really great stories, movies that you read or see, um, some of the greatest are when a young child makes some sort of, you know, they're just going about their normal life and they make some incredible discovery. They discover like some, you know, magical watch or, uh, you know, maybe someone small and unimportant discovers like a magical ring or something and suddenly they're swept up into the great historic battles between good and evil. And it's a lot more than they bargained for. They weren't looking for it, but suddenly they're here. And that is kind of the situation of the disciples. They just were, they were, they were drawn to Jesus and they've had some great time with Jesus. And now it's like, um, whoa, we didn't really, we weren't looking to find the savior of the world necessarily. And we did. And now things aren't looking so pretty. And so why does the world hate Jesus? Well, reason number one is because they hated Jesus. <laughs> In verse 20, uh, it says, the servant is not greater than his master. Or verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, right? You're not gonna, you shouldn't expect because they treated me poorly that you're going to get better treatment. Like, they'll take it out on me and it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out better for you. no. They treated me poorly, they will also hate you. And the reason is that they're going to speak Jesus' words. They're going to hold on to Jesus' words. Verse 20, if they kept my word, they will keep your word. The implication is they didn't keep my word, they're not going to keep your words. And just as Jesus pointed out to the guilt and evil of the world, Jesus tells his disciples you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. They will bear witness. They're going to also testify as Jesus testified to the guilt uh, and sin of the world. And they're going to team up with the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 26, the spirit of truth, he will bear witness about me, about who Jesus is, about what Jesus taught and what Jesus has done. And the disciples are going to do that as well. And it's not going to turn out much better. This is the exact same language that Jesus uses in John chapter 7, where he says, the world hates me because I testify or bear witness about its works that they are evil. Jesus' disciples are going to have to do the exact same thing that Jesus did. At which point you might think, they're like, well, maybe we should try a different strategy. But Jesus is not allowing for any strategic changes here. They're going to testify to him as savior, which means that they're going to have to testify to the world about their guilt and sin. So they're going to tell about who Jesus is. But there's another reason. Not only are they going to tell the world about Jesus and, and Jesus' message about the guilt of the world, but they're also going to love Jesus' words, which is going to go against the way the world wants to operate. In John 15, Jesus says in verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Or jump to 15 verse 7. If you abide in me, my words will abide in you. Now, in 15 verses 9 and 10, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you want to know the love of Jesus, if you want to abide in the love of Jesus, then you will cling to his words. That's how you abide. That's how you enjoy fellowship with Jesus is cherishing his words. But these words and this love for Jesus will incur the hate of the world. And it's very, very tempting when you get pressure, when you love Jesus' words and the first time you like maybe go out and you want to share the love of Jesus and people don't like necessarily just immediately be like, oh, that's awesome. Like, whoa, whoa, can't you tone that down a little bit? And you're like, uh, then you have to think what you love about Jesus and about his words. You're tempted uh, to water it down. 
Reason number two that the world hates Jesus, or sorry, the disciples, is that the disciples, Jesus says, are not of the world. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. The disciples don't belong to the world and its value system. And here the world is all of humanity in opposition to God. And the disciples are no longer marked by the world's ways of thinking and speaking and acting. One uh, preacher I heard tell the story of a member of his congregation. He was uh, an alcoholic and he would spend almost every single day at his local bar. And he had what he thought was a great bunch of friends, people that were there for him all the time. But when this guy thought, I need to shake my alcoholism, and so he did. He actually got clean. He did go back and expected that these friends would want to hang out still. But his rejection of his alcoholic past also meant that he no longer valued the same things that his buddies did, and they rejected him. That friendship only went so far as he shared in the same activities as them. And so that friendship dried up rather quickly. Now, why is it that the disciples are not of the world? What makes them distinct? This is reason number three, why the world hates the disciples. It's because Christ chose the disciples, verse 19. But because uh, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This, it's a good thing that Jesus said this. Because we're so prone to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But if there is any temptation towards Christian elitism and thinking, well, the sinful world, all those low lowlifes out there, and here's me in the church, Jesus loves me. I'm pretty good. Jesus cuts that off right away. There is no Christian elitism. This is only a call to recognize how humble we ought to be. The only difference between us and the world is because Jesus chose us. One uh, Reformation commentator on this passage said, if they were chosen out of the world, it follows that they were part of the world, and that it is only the mercy of God that they are distinguished from the rest who perish. Christian, your distinctiveness has everything to do with Jesus and nothing to do with yourself. It has nothing to do with your moral superiority, your spiritual enlightenment, your incredible moral discipline. But it has to do with Christ choosing you out of the world. And it's probably worth at this point also saying that there are things that the world or other people might hate you for. But here, one of the things Jesus is not saying is that the world is not going to hate you because of your political stances or of your nationality, your ethnicity, or your race. You will be hated because you belong to Jesus. You will be hated because you belong to Jesus, because Jesus chose you because Jesus is changing you, because Jesus is loving you, and he is transforming you and drawing you out of the world and the world system. And so it is Christ that the world hates in you. And the more you are like Jesus. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, we're memorizing Colossians chapter 3 with our middle school class, and this is one of the verses we had to memorize, which says, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Our motivation now for sharing Christ, which is what often incurs the hate of the world, 
It's because we too were once there. And Christ called us out, and we're simply trying to imitate Jesus. This is only a call for Christian humility. And as the church, we should not waste our time hating each other. There's enough opposition to Christ and to the gospel. We don't need to make it more difficult on ourselves. Let us give up hating and backbiting, anger, holding grudges with each other. Now, one of the questions that presses upon us, knowing that the world will hate Jesus, has hated Jesus, and has and will hate his disciples, how bad will it get? Some of us like to do a cost-benefit analysis, uh, and so you want to know how bad it's going to be? Well, Jesus tells us. In verse 2 of chapter 16, they will put you out of the synagogues. So he's speaking to his immediate disciples who were all Jewish. The synagogue was the cultural religious center for them, for their community. That was the lifeline. That was the hub of their religious and social lives as, uh, as Jewish people. And here Jesus is saying, because you follow me, you're going to face some social and religious estrangement from people that you are likely to care about. Your own people are going to kick you out of their religious life, of their cultural life. In fact, in John uh, chapter 9, Jesus heals the blind man, and this poor blind man has one of the best things that's ever happened to him, which is he can now see. And he tells everybody who asks that it was Jesus and they're like they kick him out he wasn't looking for religious persecution but Jesus changed his life and now they don't want to hear it and so they kick him out and you might think okay that's pretty extreme and that's pretty hard and you got you got to count the costs but it gets worse read further in verse 2 indeed the hour is coming when you know when Jesus says indeed you got to be like oh no Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Yikes. So not just social, religious estrangement, ostracism, but even death. And not just because they're angry at you, but they actually think that they're serving God when they kill you. Religious, zealous, murder, martyrdom kind of stuff. And that is pretty grim. And if you, church tradition tells us that all of these disciples that Jesus had suffered significantly and they all were killed for their testimony. So why does Jesus share all this? Well, he shares it because in verse 1, I have said all these things that keep you from falling away, to keep you from falling away. This is the exact same language he uses earlier in John chapter 6, where Jesus has told the world that all these uh, Jewish folks that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to be a follower of me. And they are like, what? And he says, do you take offense or do you fall away because of this? They, fall, they fell away because of his teaching. And when it gets hard, there is a lot of temptation to give up. How much can you lose for the sake of Jesus before you quit is definitely a question you have to ask. And there are plenty of people uh, that can talk a big game and say, oh, I can't wait till I can really get out there and do this or do that. You might think of a new recruit for the military who's like, yeah, I can't wait for boot camp. And then two weeks in, he's like, get me out of here. I do not want any more of this. People yelling at me and all times of the day and night. It gets a lot worse than boot camp following Jesus. And Jesus is well aware of it. And he's looking out for his disciples. He wants them to be mentally, spiritually prepared and not blindsided by the hardships that will come for following him. He says in verse four, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you remember that I told you 
And not only that, but Jesus is going to actually go and die right after this. He's going to walk the road ahead of them, and he will be with them, and he doesn't want them to lose heart. And in fact, if you read Psalm 69, which he just quoted in this section, Psalm 69, if you go back and read it, one of the prayers is that God's people won't lose heart because of the suffering that I'm going through. Now, It's kind of rough that the world hates Jesus, the world hates the disciples, and the hatred will get pretty intense. But it is remarkable the hope that Christ brings in people's lives, and I'd like to tell you a story. There's all sorts of stories that we could draw on. Uh, This being Reformation uh, weekend, we could talk about any number of uh, stories from the Protestant Reformation where folks who clearly wanted to hold on to and lift up the gospel in all its purity, faced incredible danger and hostility. But I'd like to tell you one about a young woman from Nepal who's alive today and facing serious persecution because of Jesus. She lives, her name is Sarita, and she lives in a small city just outside of Kathmandu, Nepal. In her life, she has a little boy. I don't know, oh yeah, we have a picture, good. That's her toddler. I don't actually know his name. Um, But he was having serious stomach issues, and she actually as well. And she went to and worshipped at Hindu idols. She sought out Buddhist priests. She went to the witch doctor, and none of it worked. They, They could not figure out what was wrong with her and her son. And then one day, she encounters a man who comes up to her, shares the gospel with her, and prays for her. She and her son are healed, and she was convinced that it was Christ who healed her. And so she starts going, she finds a church, starts going to church, and then she gets baptized. And she said something actually quite remarkable in the interview, which was that healing, the healing was not key. It was important in bringing her to Christ, but what was most important, the first thing that I need is to be forgiven of my sins, she said. And she became absolutely committed to Jesus. And so it seems like that was the start of a whole new, great, awesome life. But actually, things got a little bit rough, and more than a little bit rough. She and her husband were living with her in-laws, and already some people might be thinking, oh, there you go. Um, But the fact is that her father-in-law was a devout Buddhist. He also happened to be a a, um, very angry alcoholic. And when she started going to church, her father-in-law began uh, threatening her regularly, angry tirades, uh, and she couldn't get away. She lived there. And one time, he came home in a drunken rage and grabbed her by her hair and beat her with her own Bible until it was no longer a useful beating tool. And she wondered, like, is this worth it? And she thought of Christ in that moment and said, okay, I can do this because of what Christ has done for me. Now, her husband, fortunately, Kamal, did decide that they needed to get out of there, and they left for a time. And then they actually did move back to the same hometown, and she lived in rather frequent fear of her father-in-law. But she wasn't actually the only one who suffered from her father-in-law. The local pastor... Pastor Shalva also had regular encounters with this man. And in fact, she went to Pastor Shalva after getting beaten, and he prayed with her and encouraged her and gave her a new Bible. But he was not a stranger to the hostility of her own father-in-law because he came to this village to plant a church. He had been church planting in the area. And her father-in-law, in fact, gathered a bunch of people together because they knew that he traveled through the woods between some of these villages and they were going to ambush him. They were going to kill him. Fortunately, that plot was uh, found out and he, he didn't. But he obviously had to think twice about what paths he was taking to and from these different villages. And he was, the thing that was striking was so his father-in-law, or the, this, this man, Bakash, was gathering Buddhists, but also there were Maoist um, militias 
who were trying to recruit young men for their cause. And in fact, they didn't like the pastor because he was, as he was winning people to Christ, they were not buying into the cause. So he had, on the one hand, he had some Buddhist extremists, and on the other hand, he had uh, guerrilla extremists. And so this guy was getting hit from all sides. Now, one of the things that was interesting in the interview with the pastors, he said this, if we are content with our believers in the church and we just worship, worship, persecution never comes. When we evangelize, make disciples, and one church is planted and grows, then persecution is part of that. So as long as we keep to ourselves and you don't bother other people, you can avoid the hardship. But he recognized that was not an option. And he continued. For 20 years, he put up with, he, he knew very well uh, Surta's father-in-law. The guy would just yell at him, berate him. He actually got to the point where he just, it just became normal. And he, was, he just got, got over it. But Surta still lives with some fear, but she also is praying for her father-in-law, knowing the great love of Christ. And also because I think she's been prepared. She's been well discipled by Pastor Shalva to know that the world will hate Christ's followers because the world has hated Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be able to follow you no matter what. And we want to be able to keep your words. And we want to lift you up for who you really are. And we don't want to allow fear and danger and hardship to get in the way from loving you and from sharing you with others. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to know that fellowship that you share with your people and that you identify with your people even in suffering. And I pray it would bring us greater joy and greater thanks and that we would really know how much you have done for us, that we would not be afraid to love in the ways that you have loved us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand and sing one more song with us? Men of sorrows, Lamb of God, and by his own betrayed the sin of man. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, and bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. Oh, that ragged Christ, my salvation. soul cries out hallelujah praising under to thee in scent of heaven God's own son to purchase and redeem and reconcile salvation where your love poured out over me and now my 
soul cries out, Hallelujah, praise and honor unto Thee. Now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled, and now the curse of sin has no hold on me when the sun sets free oh it's free indeed and now my debt is paid it is paid in full by the precious blood that my jesus spilled and now the curse of sin has no hold on me when the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed, on that ranking cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me, and now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. See the sound. And see the stone is rolled away Behold the empty tomb Hallelujah And take a seat for just a couple moments. I want to interrogate Justin, and I need your I need your help, all right? So we like to take just a few minutes just to process a little bit of what we've heard and ask some questions, and so be thinking of that. If you've got something, you can raise your hand, and I'll call on you in a moment. I've got a couple. Uh, so um, this is, is kind of a jarring, I don't know, series of statements from Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't sound, it sounds kind of bleak. <laughs> where would someone, where could someone take what Jesus is saying and kind of go the wrong direction with it? Where could they take this, the, the world's going to hate you? Um, what, what's the way he intends it to be versus the way it, it mm-hmm. could be taken mm-hmm. in a bad way? Yeah. Um, well, I do think that... Um, it's easy to take it and apply it and say, anytime someone gets mad at you, angry at you, and think immediately it's because you're a Christian, uh, there's definitely plenty of folks who immediately attribute poor treatment from others to, well, it's because I'm a Christian, you know, when in fact, well, you actually weren't being very nice. You were just being a jerk. People are mean to you because you're a jerk. Yeah. Not because you. Not oh, because. Jesus. And maybe you used some Bible verses, but you were still a jerk. I mean, I mean, you just have to go on YouTube to see some of the most bizarre examples of Christians doing. So actually, I can give you an example. Uh, when I was over in England, there's this spot in London called Speaker's Corner, and it's known for people who get up and they give these speeches, and people gather around and listen to them, and. Um, and I was there, and some of the speeches were Christian pre- street preachers, but some of them were bizarre spree- street preachers, and essentially spewing all sorts of hateful stuff towards the audience, uh, rather than 
sharing about, yeah, we're sinners and we need Christ, they were just kind of like bashing people for things that actually weren't necessarily even sinful just because they didn't like them about certain foreigners or whatever the case may be. And of course, the crowd was like lobbing back all sorts of hateful stuff at them. And I would imagine that some of them thought they were being persecuted, um, but they really weren't in any way reflecting either the words or, <laughs> I mean, they might have quoted some Bible verses, but um, I think that those are ways that sometimes you can be misapply the passage. I don't know if there are others you can Yeah, think no, of. I think you, I think you, like you kind of hit the softball I was trying to lob you there, is that I think that people can uh, sometimes take a passage like this and then kind of create a martyrdom complex where now I can go in and just be a jerk to somebody in the name of Jesus, and if anyone pushes back or tries to correct me, uh, Jesus said this would come, and it's like, well, how are you supposed to, you know, yeah. and I just think it just not... Yeah. Not doesn't seem to accurately represent Jesus because yeah. when Jesus was persecuted, how did he respond? And we're going to see here in a couple chapters that it, my kingdom is not of this world. If they, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would be fighting. Yeah, yeah. But they're not. So yeah. you just go, okay. So I think there's there's a there's sometimes a way to take this passage and then sort of make it self-justifying, um, in a way that actually is far from Jesus. Yeah. So yeah. well, I think that there's also in Titus, Titus or. Paul's writing to Titus, and he says that we used to, uh, he's describing all these characteristics of when we used to be in the world, and one of them is we used to hate, we were used to be hated and hating others. And so I don't think Jesus is saying here that the world only hates believers. There's all sorts of hate in the world, you know, and there are occasions where you might get hated just because some, of something else. Um, yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah, I have another one here a minute, brother. Well said. Yeah. Is there another question? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Is there another question? I have one more for him, but yeah. So at the beginning of chapter six, verse nine, and sixteen. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, uh, we'll see. I'll restate it here mm -hmm. just so, for the live stream. But um, So basically, for those of us in Western United States, um, what does persecution look like for us? Uh, how does this apply to us when we don't have people killing us? Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to add kind of another tweak to that too. How should that make us think of those who are like the story you made? Like mm -hmm. what? how do we position ourselves in these words of Jesus? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that this is... 
This is a good question, and this is where I definitely felt some inadequacy in uh, preaching this passage, um, because it definitely doesn't feel like um, you're going to face uh, ostracism. But um, I, d I do think that going back actually to, it's not likely to get kicked out of churches and this sort of thing. Um, I do think that there are tons of churches in the United States that have lost sight of the gospel. And I think that for any Christian in those congregations who realizes that there very well may be some situations where they might speak up on something and say, actually, this is not what the gospel is actually about. And you might end up not maybe not you may have may leave a church or something like that, um, but I can think of a number of potential scenarios that um, where churches have confused Christianity with other things, certain facets of American culture or politics or whatever the case may be, um, and that I think could potentially lead to some estrangement, ostracism, and that sort of thing. I think another area is often family is a huge area where. Um, I, my mom, for example, grew up in a church-going family, but very clearly uh, when she was in her young adult years, became an actual Christian and realized, my family doesn't know anything about the Bible or Jesus, like nothing. And when she tried to be like, hey, look, this is what the Bible's about. This is what Jesus has done. That didn't go very well. Um, and there are definitely years where I think uh, my mom felt very much estranged from her family. Um, so, um, so yeah, they weren't going to kill her or anything, but there are definitely Christians who will experience estrangement, maybe even get cut off from the family. Actually, in Serta's situation, this is one of the dangers that their family faced was her husband didn't convert. Uh, he remained a Buddhist, but by moving out and standing up for his wife, he faced being disinherited, um, from, by their family, and I'm certain that Christians could face things like that. Uh, I think that it's definitely feasible that Christians could lose jobs potentially uh, for certain situations. It's not certainly not as common as other parts of the world, but it's not completely out of the question, um, or maybe getting passed up for or mistreatment in the workplace. I, I do think that things tend to not be very extreme at this point, but certainly social... Uh, relational ostracism, loneliness are definitely real, real dangers right now. I, I don't know if you want to add to that. I think it's helpful to be aware of what brothers and sisters around the world go through. Um, Yeah, I think that there's there's definitely some some states where that's definitely the case, um, for sure. Yeah, Melody. Yeah, how can you tell? We kind of asked that question a little bit here, but the how do you know the difference between when you're being persecuted for something related to Christ versus something that you've done or said? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, I do think that if if we are sharing Christ sort of out of um, self righteous expectation or like we're trying to somehow prove that we're a Christian. By making people angry at us, I think that that seems problematic. Um, I don't know. I think it's probably in some ways, I do think that there are situations where you can go the wrong way and be like, I'm trying to be so winsome, and you gauge how winsome or persuasive you are based on not getting any pushback. I think that is a danger. Um, 
or if you avoid saying like the hard things about what Jesus has done and what that means for people, uh, I think that's another thing. But I think it's one thing to say with conviction, look, you need Jesus. I also, and as I think, I think that the, the phrase, and I, I know it gets attributed to all sorts of different pastors, but like one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread, I think that if our attitude is one of, I desperately need Jesus, and you desperately need Jesus, and I'm going to tell you as truthfully as I can what that involves, I think that that's a good posture. Um, and if you get pushed back to not just then modify your, modify your message, you know, uh, keep setting forth Jesus clearly, and if that doesn't go very well, you know, I, you know maybe that's just kind of receive the, <laughs> receive the persecution and pray. I think prayer is probably another way to deal with properly sharing the gospel. I don't know if that's helpful or maybe not. Probably have better ideas than I do. Yes, sir. Do maybe one or two more things. That's a great question. Yeah, good question. Yep, John fifteen twenty two is what he asked here, is if I had not come and spoke to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So were they, yeah. so were they guilt, not guilty of sin before, and now they are? Yeah. Like, what's the, what's yeah, the deal so there? It, it's on the surface, you might think, oh, if Jesus hadn't showed up, there'd be no judgment day, right? Essentially, right? Everyone gets a free pass, but it's now that Jesus showed up, and you're like, why would you show up if everyone's going to get a free pass, right? That's, I mean, that's, and if you read John, you know that John says that actually the world is going to face judgment. Um, so I think that what Jesus is speaking about here specifically is he, he's talking about two things. One in, in particular, he's talking very concretely about the Jewish resistance, particularly the leaders, to everything that he has said. And I think that really what Christ is saying here is not that they were innocent and not going to face judgment, but now they've upped the ante, that they are going to be much more accountable for he having now heard of Christ uh, and, and seeing so clearly Christ and actually not, and this is where I think that he says, and they have seen me and they have hated me and my father. Like, their, their, their sin has been exposed to absolutely, like, it's been laid absolutely bare. Like, they didn't realize how much they were in opposition to God. They were going to face judgment, but now it is, like, way worse. And Christ says in the synoptics, in the other gospels, he says, if the same works that I had done were done in Sodom and Gomorrah or Tyre and Sidon, these other places that God judged, they would have repented. But now, essentially, he's saying, because I've, of this, your direct encounter with me in this manner, things are going to be far worse for you on Judgment Day. So I think that there is this level of increments of judgment and the severity of sin that Christ is dealing with. Not that there's like, they were totally guiltless, but rather how, how high is their guilt now? Does that make sense? Okay, good. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, again, this is in the context of John 15 of union with Jesus. And so uh, this is him speaking to his disciples so that when the tough time comes, like it's about to come for him, they wouldn't be totally disoriented. I've said these things so you would not fall away. So if we're going to receive resistance, may it be because we've identified ourselves with Jesus. Does that make sense? And so that's, that's kind of the idea here is go ahead and, and cast that on me and respond as I have responded, and um, it's all about that union with Jesus. And so, yeah, so I think it's important for us to remember that we're not supposed to go seeking persecution, but if it were to come, may it be because we have, uh, we look like Jesus, we smell like Jesus, we act like Jesus, and uh, we'll see in the rest of this gospel exactly how Jesus does respond 
when he faces persecution, and he is the one that's going before us. So with that, would you please stand, and here's our benediction. If there's anything that I can be in prayer for you about or any other questions about following Jesus or about our church, I'll be around. There's lots of other people around, and we'll would love to just uh, chat with you, pray with you, encourage you. Uh, there's some resources back on the table if you want to grab something you're free to have um, whatever would be helpful to you back there. So thanks for being here today. Um, our benediction comes from 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter, the whole book of 1 Peter really unpacks more of this theme of what it looks like to suffer and deal with hardship uh, in this John 15 uh, kind of way. So if you're intrigued by what we've talked about today, go read 1 Peter in terms of what is the Christian's disposition to what Jesus said would come. 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for being here. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.